Did you notice the name, the title of my sermon this morning in your bulletin, or on the cover of your bulletin? The greatest sermon I have ever preached. (laughs) Starting to sound like my dad more and more every day. (laughs) Reminds me of the young preacher who went to his church, first church, and after a period of time he got invited to go speak at a retreat and... uh, as he was speaking at this men's retreat, well, there was one of his deacons sitting right there. And he thought, well, that's kind of nice. And time went on, and he got asked to speak at a banquet somewhere. And he went and spoke at the banquet, and there was that same deacon sitting right there. And every time he spoke somewhere, that deacon was sitting right there. After a while, he, he thought, well, I want to know what's going on here. And so he, he went to him, and he said, how, how come you're always there? He said, it's nice that you're there, but it's kind of curious to me. And he said, well, you know, I've, I've always heard that every preacher has one good sermon in him, and I'm going to be there when you preach it. <laughs> well, uh, I've called this the greatest sermon I've ever preached. I, I would, it would be better to put it this way. The greatest message I've ever given, as in the subject content. Look at John chapter 1, verse... 29 the next day john saw jesus coming toward him and he said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world this is he of whom i said after me comes a man who is preferred before me for he was before me i did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. I just want to talk to you about uh, chapter 1, verse 29 today. Behold, the Lamb of God. This is, without a doubt, the greatest message of the Bible. It is the good news. Alexander McLaren, who was considered by many to be one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, said this about John 1, 29. My text is the sum of all Christian teaching ever since. My task, and that of all preachers, if we understand it aright, is but to repeat the same message and to concentrate attention on the same fact, quote, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. It is the truth that we all need most. There is no reason for our being gathered together now except that I may beseech you to behold for yourselves the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Well, I want to talk to you about this greatest verse of the Bible or one of the greatest verses and and ask this question, why is this one of the greatest texts in the Bible? It's one of the greatest texts in the Bible because it identifies the greatest need of mankind. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. There are basically three places today or three sources today that people point fingers to when they're trying to understand where all of the hurtful, harmful actions of mankind come from. And one of the places that they look is to 
environmental decay. They look around at the, at the world around the people and they say, surely people act poorly because of the things in their life. This actually is a very old, old understanding and it started in Genesis chapter 3. And God said to Adam and Eve, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Let's paraphrase that last part. Have you done what I told you not to do? Then the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. First thing Adam did was point to his closest environment. He said, that woman caused me to sin. And of course, she learned her lesson. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, that serpent deceived me and I ate. Understanding our problems, which God calls sin, from this perspective of environment is as old as the Garden of Eden. How does it play out today? Today it plays out this way. If your children are messed up, if I could use that word, it's your fault. We look at early experiences in life, especially early abuse, and we say, if you were abused, it's not your fault. It's the fault of your abuser that you are now doing wrong. We look at the quality and quantity of education. Surely, if you had better education, you wouldn't be acting this way. Surely, if you were smarter, you would know how to act. We look at the living conditions and health. Surely, if you didn't have to struggle for your physical health and for your food and so on, you would act better. There is a second source, a second place where people look to explain the hurtful, harmful things of this world, and it's what I have called genetic decay, and that would be summarized in this little phrase, my brain or my physical body somehow made me do this. Every unpleasant, unproductive, unwelcome, harmful, hurtful, hateful action of mankind is currently under study to find a source in your physical body. And if you think I'm overstating the fact, pay attention to the newspaper. Frequently, there are studies, DNA studies being written about, which says there may be a gene that causes infidelity. There may be a gene that causes obesity. Uh, there may be a gene that causes anger, etc., etc. And the thought is, of course, the thought goes like this, if you've never considered it. Basically, the world says it is not normal for people to overeat, commit adultery, murder, become depressed, or have panic disorders, or fill in the blank. They say it's just not normal. Therefore since we know there is no God and there is no spiritual part of mankind, therefore, there must be something wrong in their brain or their DNA. And the reasoning goes, if we can find the defective gene or the broken brain synapses, then we can give people the cure. And when it happens, I'll change my theology. But I'm fairly confident that in over a hundred years of modern psychology and psychiatry and, and on neurology and you name it, there's been no significant progress in helping mankind live in a joyful, peaceful condition. It just isn't happening. Because the environment or your body are not the problem. 
The real problem is what I'm calling heart decay. That is, I willfully choose to do wrong. That's what Eve did. The serpent talked to her, but she looked at that tree and said, I'm going to do it. I know God said not to, but I'm going to do it. I willfully choose to do wrong. Listen to Matthew 15. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. Out of the heart these things proceed. Listen to Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh... These are the things that come out of your body. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. God says, I'll tell you where those things come from. They come from right inside you. We human beings are like the foolish woman of Proverbs 14.1 who pulls down her house with her own hands. Nobody else is ruining your life. Nobody else. Now again, I want you to listen to Alexander McLaren, the the preacher that I quoted first. Now, do not misunderstand me as if I were warring against good and noble men who are trying to remedy the world's evils by less thorough methods than Christ's gospel. They will do a great deal. But you may have high education, beautiful refinement of culture and manners. You may divide out political power in accordance with the most democratic notions. You may give everybody a quote-unquote living wage, however extravagant his notions of a living wage may be. You may carry out all these panaceas and the world will groan still because you have not dealt with the tap root of all the mischief. You cannot cure an internal cancer with a plaster upon the little finger. And you will never staunch the world's wounds until you go to the physician that has balm and bandage, even Jesus Christ that takes away the sin of the world. Can you guess when those words were written? A few years ago, 1942. In 1942, and he's writing in in England, I believe, he is basically saying there are people trying to change the world through social good. That's not a new phenomenon, folks. There's been people trying to do that for a long time, much longer than 1942. Today, one of the most notable Um, uh, agencies, institutions that is trying to change the world through bettering the social conditions of mankind is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, And here is a quote from their website. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is committed to promoting greater equity, greater equity in global health, education, public libraries, and support for the at-risk families in Washington State and Oregon. Do you know that Windward High School, right out here in the old Chevy dealership, is the result of grants from the Gates Foundation? They believe that smaller schools serve students better, and they're giving millions and millions of dollars to help create what they believe is a better educational environment. You know why? Because they believe that's one of the keys to changing the world. Okay? Now, just like Alexander McLaren said, I, I would say with them, praise the Lord. 
I mean, I'd rather see Bill Gates' money go into that than, you know, real estate development or you name it. Is that good that he's putting some money into education? Is that good that he has a goal, I believe, I, I, I may be misquoting here, of like eradicating some of the diseases in the third world countries that we have eradicated, like polio and some of those kinds of things. He's trying to get rid of that to help the world's population live better. That's a wonderful thing. But I just want to ask this question, a couple of questions. If better education and a better economic situation is the key to a better life, then why is there a Seattle Seahawks football player in the Harborview Hospital with a potentially career-ending injury sustained at a fight at 2 o'clock in the morning outside a nightclub in Seattle? That guy's got money. Those people who are at that club have some money. Maybe it's education. They didn't have enough education. They weren't smart enough to know not to fight. Obviously. I mean, obviously they weren't smart enough not to know that. If education and a better economic situation is the key to life, then why did people with good-paying jobs at the highest level of the United Nations take advantage of the Oil for Food program with Iraq and fill their own bank accounts illegally? Surely those people must be educated or they wouldn't have those jobs. And surely they get a good paying job if you're up toward the top of that organization. If better education makes better people, why does a doctor in Seattle, a doctor, one of the highest, most, the most educated people in our country, why does a doctor in Seattle take sexual advantage of his female patients? I mean, there's a guy with education and money. What's wrong with his life? And pardon me for saying so, but all of us have been to school. Many of us sitting right here are college educated to one degree or another. We all have excellent health care. So why do we keep struggling to do what's right at times? Because our problem isn't educational or economic or social or physical. Our problem is spiritual. We have heart decay. We are sinners. Now, by God's grace, most of us sitting here this morning are saved sinners, and we have been on the road to to, uh, untangling the webs of sin in our life for many years. But if there's somebody here today who has never embraced Christ as your Savior, I just want to say as kindly as I can, the problem is not your environment, it's you and your heart and your mind. Now, why is that a kind statement? I'm going to tell you why that's a kind statement. Because the next thing I'm going to say is the solution to your problem. Well, excuse me, I'm going to talk about the result of your problem first and then the solution. We need to understand the result here because it's part and parcel of the good news. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a text here that, that is both hard and happy first corinthians 6 verse 9 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god that's a that's a synonym phrase for saying will not go to heaven when they die do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Let me just paraphrase that very simply for you. God is not intending to give an exhaustive list of the sins that will send you to hell. What he's doing is giving a representative list. And the paraphrase would go something like this. If you are a sinner, you will go to hell. But look what he says. Here's the good part. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I think God chooses in that list to put some things that we think are pretty bad, humanly speaking, so that when he says, you know what, some of you, he's talking to the Corinthian church, some of you, that's what your life was like, but that's not true anymore. You were washed clean. Your sins were forgiven. What he's saying to us here is, there's no sin too big for God. There's no sin from which God cannot save you and make you a new person in Christ. It's important for us to understand not only the source of our actions, but the result of our actions. Listen to what Revelation chapter 20 says, almost to the, to the end of the Bible. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled, and there was found no place for them. In other words, they tried to run away from him and they couldn't do it. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This passage will forever live in my mental imagination as I saw it depicted in Africa by a group of young people who who acted this scene out. And they had, they had a person that was Jesus standing there, and then they had the angel next to him uh, holding the book. Holding the books. And they, brought, they had earlier played out the lives of some people on earth, some as sinners, some as people who had been saved. And they brought the, the sinners in, and uh, they, he says, open the book. And they open the book. And what's in the book? I'll tell you what's in the book. The list of your sins. And they look in the book. But that's not the end of the story because it says there was another book opened. And he opens the other book. And the other book is the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh oh. I did the bad thing, Tim. There you go. We're going to fix that one of these days. I'm going to go right there. And anyone not found written in the book of life. The books, the lists of your sins are kept until you accept Christ as your Savior. And if you get all the way to this judgment that we call the great white throne judgment, if you get all the way there and your name doesn't get written in the book of life, as in you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, then you will be judged out of these books. And God will look at the list of your sins and say, You're a sinner. I can't let you into heaven. You're a sinner. Whereas those of us who have been written in the Lamb's book of life don't even go to this judgment. The Lamb's book of life is only there to prove to the sinners that they've never accepted Christ. Look, as we put it in many modern songs today, there's no reservation for you. You didn't do your homework on earth. And now it's too late. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin 
of the world. Friend, there is no such thing as hell on earth. No matter how bad your life is here, it will be worse in eternity. It will be worse when you are cast into the lake of fire. Do you know what God says the lake of fire was built for? I heard, so, I heard a, another pastor teach this recently, and I thought, how did I miss this? God didn't build hell for us. He built it, it's, the scripture says it is reserved for the devil and his angels. That's what it was created for. But you know what? God is going to cast all of the sinners who have rejected his gracious offer of salvation. They will also be cast there. And it's a terrible place according to the scripture. Now, that's the bad news. But as we come back to John 1.29, the great news here is he says, look, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Not only is this the greatest text in scripture because it tells us of our need which is the forgiveness of sin, it tells us how that sin problem is solved. Why do we have a sin problem? First of all, we have a sin problem because of the holiness of God. We talked about Adam and Eve a little bit already, but listen to this. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve were untested. They were were not righteous, but they were sinless. And God put them in the garden and he said, there's only one commandment. Well, I guess essentially we'd say there was three. He said, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, they were supposed to have children and rule the earth. Those were the easy commands. The hard command was, don't eat that fruit. There's one tree. All the rest is for you. There's one thing not to touch. I was down at a church helping them with their sound system a couple days ago. And this little kid that I don't know, he just comes up and puts his hands right into my stuff. And I said, hey, hey, hey. I said, nice people ask first. You know, and I just took his hands out. Why is it with kids? Something they've never seen, never touched. They're going right to that. There's a whole room full of stuff. But no, he's in my toolbox, in my stuff. God said, don't don't eat of that tree. And Eve gave in. The reason we need the Lamb of God is first and foremost because of God's holiness. God is completely perfectly, totally, universally, whatever word I could use to add it up, righteous, holy. And so when Adam and Eve failed to live up to his standard, a great distance was created between God and man. God cannot coexist with sin. There's no way that God can let sinners into heaven God's righteousness is the first reason that we need salvation. The second reason is man's willfulness. (laughs) God's holiness would have been okay if Adam and Eve had had just submitted. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The real issue here is obedience. I'll put it real simply. Who rules your life? I believe there are a great many people who resist 
salvation in Christ because they understand they have to let go of their control of their life and and give it over to Christ. And that certainly is what God intends. Who rules you, God or self? Adam and Eve sinned, and according to Romans 5, the sin of Adam has come down to us all. I believe that what happened was that God allowed Adam and Eve to take the test for us all. Essentially something like this. If you were put in that perfect environment, you'd do the same thing. You're no better than Adam. You're no better than Eve. Of course, we know now that we're much worse than they are because the sin nature has devolved over the years to us. But in their, if we were put there in our perfect state, we would have done the same thing. Adam took the test. Mankind failed. So what is God's gracious response to our need? The first response is to God's to Adam and Eve intimate sacrifice. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. In Genesis 3:21 it says also for Adam and Eve the Lord God made tunics or clothing of skin and clothed them. Now how do you make how do you make a fur coat? You kill the animal. There's bloodshed in that process. One of the interesting ways that God talks about Adam and Eve and talks about their need is nakedness and clothing. The idea that they didn't know they were naked until they sinned and, and somehow their eyes were opened to sin and righteousness and then they saw that they were naked and they tried to make their own clothing out of fig leaves, the, the immortalized fig leaf that we have on statues and whatnot. They tried to cover themselves with that. Their own human efforts at covering were not good enough. The problem was not that they were naked. The problem is that they were naked in their own strength. And so God comes along and makes them clothing out of the skins of animals. He doesn't specifically say in Genesis 3, now what's going to happen here is I'm going to kill this animal and the blood sacrifice will atone for your sin until Jesus dies. He doesn't say that in Genesis 3. We find that out in the book of Hebrews as this whole scenario unfolds over the Old Testament. God's first response to sin intimate sacrifice secondly god's legal requirement for sin was sacrifice and i'm not going to take time to go back to the old testament but you could read throughout the old testament system where god said look when you sin you bring an animal and the priest will sacrifice it and so on and god allowed that to atone or to cover for sin it really got started with what we call passover the time when they were in Egypt and God allowed Moses to perform the ten miracles that we call the plagues, the last one of which is the death of the firstborn, man and beast. And so after that, God, expelled, God, God caused Pharaoh to send them out so they could leave and go to Israel. But the way that they survived that death of the firstborn was they had to sacrifice a lamb and there was a whole ritual that was prescribed the blood had to be put on the doorposts of the house and they had to be inside under the blood figuratively or symbolically and god said if you do that when the death angel comes to kill the firstborn man and beast i will spare you i will pass over you that's where the name came from God's legal requirement, and the reason I use the word legal requirement, because as, as the children of Israel go out into the desert, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, they receive the law of God, which spells out sacrifice very clearly. And that is in place all the way till we get to Jesus Christ, when we read about God's real payment for sin. 
And again, what I mean by that was all the Old Testament sacrifices were accepted by God as a temporary fix until the real payment came. 1 Peter 1 tells us about this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In John chapter 1, I believe God uses the word lamb both to connect us backward and forward to the person of Christ. All of the Old Testament experience talked about um, bringing the lamb for sacrifice and the lamb had to be without blemish. And here comes Jesus who was sinlessly perfect and shed his blood for our sin. Isaiah 53 talks about it at some length in terms of God's gracious response to our need. He was oppressed. It's talking about Jesus. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Why did it please God to bruise Christ or to put him to death on the cross? Because there's no other way you can be saved from your sin. Did it make God happy for Jesus to suffer? As in, oh boy, Jesus is suffering? No, 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 no. In fact, just the opposite. I believe that's what the darkness is about when Christ is on the cross and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as though God turns his back while he pours the sin of the world on Jesus and God can't be face to face with sin. So somehow that we can't quite understand, he separates himself from his son while he pours out his wrath for sin on Jesus. And it pleased him because he became the real offering for sin he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many or make many righteous for he shall bear their iniquities or their sins turn with me to romans chapter 3 i want you to understand why this is so gracious of god <clears throat> Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start with a verse that you're really familiar with. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are, being, we are justified or made righteous freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation. That's the big theological term. The other word from Isaiah 53 is satisfaction. Whom God set forth as a satisfaction by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. 
Folks, the reason this is so gracious of God is this. God in heaven looks down at mankind, Adam and Eve, to start with and says, why did you disobey me? It cuts him to his heart. But you know what he does? He clothes them with animal skins. And all the way down here to the death of Jesus Christ, he puts all the sin of mankind on Christ, even though all of the human beings who have already lived and all who will live continue to willfully sin. He says, you know what? The only way I can be just and the justifier, the only way I can be righteous and the one who makes people righteous is if somebody pays for this sin. And so what does he do? Does he make you pay? Does he make you suffer? Does he make you live in hell on earth? Does he make you go to some place called purgatory and suffer a little bit while your sins are scrubbed up after you die and before you go to heaven? No, he makes his own son suffer for you. He pours out your guilt, your penalty onto him. And that's why it's so gracious. He's the one who set the standard and he's the one who's making it possible for you to meet that standard. God's gracious removal of sin is through faith in Christ. And these verses we're familiar with, but we need to expand on it just a little bit from Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to say in Ephesians 2, 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead or totally controlled in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not only does God punish Jesus for your sin, but he makes it possible for you to uh, obtain the result of that sacrifice by putting faith in Christ. He doesn't ask you to do some great work. He doesn't ask you to give some sum of money doesn't ask you to crawl on your knees and beg for forgiveness. He just says, look, will you believe in what I'm telling you here? Will you believe that Jesus died for your sin? Will you believe that he rose again? Will you believe that that's the only way for your sin to be forgiven? And if you'll do that, he'll take that blood of Christ and put it onto your sin and wash you clean. And that's why this is the greatest, one of the greatest Verses in the Bible. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Your greatest need has been taken care of by God. This next Saturday, I will be tying the knot for a couple in Seattle. Young gal that was in our church in Tukwila and man that she's marrying, a Christian man. And at the end of the ceremony, I will do like I always do and like I will do for uh, Chris and Karen here uh, in a few months and for my daughter and my other daughter I will step aside and present them and I'll say it's my privilege to introduce to you for the first time Mr. and Mrs. in this case next week it will be Mr. and Mrs. Bramwell Rand great name good strong name I guess huh I will step aside and introduce them and that'll be a great moment everybody will clap yeah Everybody will smile, mom's a wipe of tears. And they'll march down the aisle going, whew, that's finally over, all right, you know. 
And that'll be a great moment. But you know what? It's not that great compared to being able, like John the Baptist, to point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What John was saying was, Look, this is the guy I've been telling you about. How great is it? Here he is right now. I just want to ask you today, have you accepted the Lamb? Have you accepted God's gracious gift offered by our Heavenly Father? Wow. And if you have accepted His gift, could I challenge you today to meditate on it? What's that mean to meditate? It means to just stop and think, to read that over and over, to read some of these scriptures we've been talking about. And I think if you do, you'll come away saying, thank you, God. And you know what that is? That's worship. When you just stop and say, thank God for saving me. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving many of the people sitting here this morning. Father, you know our hearts, and you know if there's anybody here who's never accepted that your son, who's never accepted your gracious offer of salvation, thank you for being so gracious. Father, if there's somebody here who's never accepted that, open their heart today. Help them to see that you're standing ready to take their sin away. What a great day this would be. Father, bless us now as we sing and as we commit these thoughts to you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.